Happy 2021 and welcome to the first episode of season four of Can't Make This Up. I want to kick off the year with a couple of housekeeping items. Uh, The first one you might not have noticed, but in your podcast app, uh, the show's name has changed uh, ever so slightly. It was the Can't Make This Up history podcast, which I'm painfully aware of is awkward as hell to say. And I've decided this year to change it to simply Can't Make This Up. Uh, That's something I wanted to do in the beginning, but when I was looking at podcast names uh, and I looked up Can't Make This Up, uh, Netflix had a podcast on making of a murderer series called Can't Make This Up. Uh, I think Kevin Hart had a similarly named podcast, and like I just can't compete with that. Uh, But now, starting in my fourth year... I have you guys, a little bit of a listenership. Um, I feel free to change the name to what I wanted it to be. So, what does that mean for you when you scroll for the episodes of this podcast? It's now going to be in the C's for Can't Make This Up rather than the T's for the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Uh, You'll also notice that I changed the logo. Uh, Something a little bit different. Uh, Let me know what you guys think on uh, Twitter or Instagram. Like it, hate it whatever, uh, let me know. Uh, you can connect with the show on uh, any social media, uh, at CMTU History, Twitter, Instagram, uh, and Facebook. Uh, I would love to hear from you. Uh, if you like the show, um, subscribe. Please rate and review. Those things are all incredibly helpful. And then another way to support the podcast is through the show's Patreon page, uh, where you can support the podcast for as little as a dollar and uh, gain access to bonus material. Uh, I'm developing a collection of bonus Q&A with our guests. Uh, Today, my guest, Tom Clavin, uh, was kind enough to answer a bonus question, and so we tackle the question of, was the shootout at the OK Corral inevitable uh, in the story of Tombstone? Uh, And so he gives a very interesting answer to that. All right, I think that's it for housekeeping. So what are we talking about today? Well, there's something about the Old West that just calls to the American heart. Uh, There's something about life on the wild frontier that is, it's still compelling a century and a half later. I don't know, maybe it's all the Louis L'Amour novels and Clint Eastwood movies that have romanticized the cowboy era in pop culture. But one legendary town that has become synonymous with the Old West is Tombstone. My guest today is best-selling author Tom Clavin, who joins me to talk about his book, Tombstone, The Earp Brothers, Doc Holliday, and The Vendetta Ride from Hell. Today, Tom and I unpack the story of a frontier boomtown that is so much more than the famous shootout at the OK Corral. We discuss the first settlement of the Arizona Territory, the lives of the Earp Brothers and Doc Holliday, what frontier law looked like, and how Tombstone was caught up in the transition from the chaotic Old West to the more orderly New West. So let's check it out. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast Bringing you strange but true things from the past It's not the average history that you learned in school We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools Them stories that are just too crazy to believe The stranger than fiction and super unique Tom Clavin, welcome to the podcast 
Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Uh, how are you on this snowy day, sir? Well, fine, because yours truly did not get enough snow that he has to go out there breaking my back to shovel it, so I'm, I'm in good shape. <laughs> if you would be so kind, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you know, what's your background, and uh, how have you gotten into the history uh, field? Well, my background is, was mostly in the journalism business, uh, being a newspaper reporter, a magazine writer uh, for years. And, uh, you know, there's always, it, it, it'd be hard pressed to find somebody who's in the journalism business that doesn't think, gee, I'd like to do a book sometime. And I sort of fell into it that I was doing a magazine piece and somebody who, a couple, husband and wife couple who I interviewed for the magazine piece were looking for they actually already had an agent and a contract for a book and they were looking for somebody who could write because as expert as they are they in their field they they weren't writers and so we sort of hit it off and that ended up being my first book and anybody aspiring writers out there uh i'm talking really non-fiction now to, you know novelists are a different story but but uh that is a good way to try and break in is if you can partner with somebody who's an expert in the field and then uh, work with them to, to bring a book to the, to the time when it gets published. And so I did, I, I got my early start mostly as, as collaborating with other people to put their thoughts and histories and experiences into, into readable prose. Uh, and then I got, you know, just really a, a good fortune that I was able to, to select topics that uh, I was interested in, that I found publishers willing to uh, publish and uh, I got in the newspaper business, uh, well, I guess it was about 17 years ago. Uh, and because I had really, I, I was going to take the plunge and see if I could make a living writing full time. And, and that's what I've been doing ever since. And, uh, you know, it's really been my good fortune that, that, uh, that I'm writing about topics that I care about and that, and that they not only get published, but that people buy the books so I can, I can still manage to keep writing full time. And you, you've uh, turned that into a, you know, a really good career as a writer, and, and you've seemed to really take in an interest in the West. Um, why is that? You know, I, that wasn't necessarily planned. Uh, you know, I, I did, I was a child at a time when you were surrounded in popular culture by stories about the American West. I mean, you know, unlike today, they were still making a steady diet of feature films about the American West. You know, you went to the movies, you could see double Western double features still. And certainly on television, there were shows like Rawhide and Bonanza and the Big Valley and, you know, any of those other shows that, that people of a certain age will remember quite readily. However, I never aimed to be a writer about the American West. It was a book called Dodge City, which came out in 2017, which was my first foray into that field. And uh, I was already... You know, by the time that book came out, uh, I was already on, on to another book. I was even under contract to work on a book that was a World War II story. But Dodge City came out, and it was such a success that my publisher said, listen, could you put that World War II story aside? Let's come up with another book. Um, you know, because they were getting demands from booksellers and, and consumers saying, well, what else? Who's he tackling next? You know, Dodge, Dodge City prominently featured with Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson. Who's next? So I ended up doing a Wild Bill about Hickok, and that was successful. And then uh, it seemed like, okay, we have two books. We might as well finish the story 
with a trilogy uh, and I turned it into a trilogy. And so that's when my most recent book, uh, Tombstone, was, was published, written and published, uh, because that sort of completes this frontier, frontier lawman arc that chronologically begins with Wild Bill in the 1850s and 1860s and concludes uh, in 1882 with the Earp Vendetta Ride. And it's, it sort of mirrors what was happening in the, in the American West at that time with the gradual you know, a spread of law and order and, and lawmen that went from being shoot first and ask questions later to actual police departments and police commissioners. So I wish I could say that this was the culmination of a very carefully laid out and implemented plan, but I sort of fell into it. <laughs> um, well, you know, some of the best things, you know, happen like that. And, you yeah. know, if people want to go back and kind of get the full story, we're going to focus on, on the, the newest installment, but if people want to go back and get the full story, they can check out um, uh, Dodge City and is it Wild, Wild Bill? Bill? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. If anybody's, if anybody's the type that says, well, I want to do things chronologically. Uh, That's me. Chronolog- That's always me. <laughs> yeah. Well, chronologically Wild Bill comes first because you, most of his heyday was the 1850s, 60s into the 70s. Dodge City covers the period of the mid to late 1870s. And then Tombstone covers the period from the late 1870s to the, you know, to 1882. So if, if it's important to go from, all right, let's, let's, let's go along with the march of time as American history was from the 1850s to the 1880s, I would suggest Wild Bill, Dodge City, then Tombstone. All right. And so, so the book we're talking about today is, is Tombstone, the Earp Brothers, Doc Holliday, and the Vendetta Ride from Hell, uh, which is the coolest title for a book ever. Um, I like that one. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, what was it like writing this? Because when I, I read it, to me, it feels like a, a stage play set in Tombstone with this huge ensemble cast of a bunch of characters that are morally ambiguous and they're all politicking. Uh, what was it like to tackle something this, this large? Well, I have to say it was, uh, it wasn't that difficult a book to write. I mean, every book has its difficulties and every book can be, is a slog to some extent uh, because it's just a big project and it takes up, you know, it's a a marathon as opposed to to writing a newspaper article or magazine article, which can be done in in a day or two or a week or two or a month. You know, a book can take up to a couple of years, if not longer. Uh, There's a book I'm just finishing that, that I started in 2016. But with this book, uh, a great advantage that I had was that it was the third book in a trilogy. So I wasn't starting from scratch with, with, with this story and especially with some of the characters. You know, I was dealing with, I was, I was, in Tombstone you find an older white herb. I don't mean an old white herb, but somebody who's in his 30s now and has had a lot of life and lawman experience as opposed to Dodge City where he was a young white herb and, and just trying to figure things out as he went along. Uh, so I had some already some some time I'd spent with the researching of the Earp brothers and of the American West and of that Western migration of the manifest destiny and things like that that were gradually spreading across the United States from the East Coast to California. So in the case of Tombstone, I had a lot of that that material and experience of writing about this period of time under my belt. So it was more like... Um, Writing Tombstone was more a matter of trying to bring things 
not full circle, but complete the arc uh, of, of uh, what was happening in the American West from the time, basically from the time that the Civil War ended and this huge migration started to take place of people heading west. And in the 1880s, when even the U.S. government, the Department of the Interior, declared the frontier closed. Uh, they officially did. They said the frontier is closed. That's it. We, 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 there's no place left to, to explore that's new territory. I'm not saying that every place in the United States in the lower 48 was settled. Of course not. You know, we still have vast stretches of open land today. But it was like there was, this is kind of poignant to say, and, and Tombstone is kind of a poignant book. There's nothing new. You know, there's, if we're going to find something new, we have to find it elsewhere. You know, we have, we have to look in Alaska. Uh, we have to look at Hawaii. We have to we have to look to the moon. We have to look to the planets. But as far as the lower forty-eight of the United States was concerned, that the the frontier had been pretty much explored and settled. So that story of exploration begins long before Tombstone. Um, so what can you tell us about the settlement of that area, uh, New Mexico territory, and then and then later what will become Arizona territory? Well, the the. The Southwest was, for the most part, you know, other than the Santa Fe Trail, which ended, you know, in Santa Fe, um, the the a lot of that that land there was unexplored and for a lot of people uninhabitable. You know, you have you have uh, very dry uh, conditions, and, uh, uh, and 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 it probably if it wasn't for the end of the Civil War, when you had two things happening, one. It was just, I think, natural, if I could use that word, that a lot of people were going to see, let's go explore and maybe settle. Let's find where there's a lot of cheap land and start a new life. That was the motivation for a lot of people. But especially with the conclusion of the Civil War, you had a lot of Southerners who said, let's get out of here because they felt, I'm not saying everyone did, but a lot of Southerners felt that they were living in occupied territory after the Civil War and the Reconstruction years. And they said, let's get out of here. Let's, let's move west and find some place where we can feel free again, you know, instead of these, being under the thumb of these Yankee oppressors. So they worked their way across Texas, and they worked their way into New Mexico, and eventually worked their way from New Mexico to Arizona. And that was really the last frontier, uh, Arizona, because, um, you know, if you got, went farther west, you bumped into, you got to California, which was already pretty much settled and explored. So that's that. So Arizona, even for its arid conditions and and its difficulties, there was lots of it, and it was the land was cheap. And if you could figure out a way to find water, and and start a ranch, start a small town, uh, you uh, start a farm, uh, you you know you had all this land that you could you could play with and maybe raise a family, build a small town, build start building churches and schools. In the case of Tombstone specifically, what made it especially enticing and made it grow very rapidly was the discovery of silver in, in the mountains uh, around Tombstone. And it may have been, I'm sure there are people out there who know this better than I do, but it may have been the last major boomtown of the American West. And so as what happened with other boomtowns, people came running. You know, they, everybody wants to get rich quick, even authors. And um, <laughs> you know, they get, and the, 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 the word spread that silver had been found is huge quantities of it. Let's go. Let's stake a claim. Let's dig in there and, and start clawing the silver right out of the mountain. So almost overnight, Tombstone uh, was founded. And that's sort of what separated it from many of the other frontier towns at the time. 
Uh, I can't remember where I picked this up. I I read it or heard it somewhere, but but somebody said in all all these boom towns, people made a ton of money. It just wasn't the miners. Well, the miners, of course, did most of the hard work, hard work literally in the trenches. Uh, but you know, boom towns made money for you. Know, you had people come in who would buy the rights to the mines from these smaller, sometimes one person operators or just a small company that put their pennies together and, and bought the 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 develop the exploration rights to a, a piece of property and so if the mine paid off they were in a position to reap most of the benefits you also had a wells fargo as an example and i certainly don't mean this as a criticism but wells fargo uh they they got their start they became you know began to become the big international conglomerate they are today by opening banks, I mean, people, if they made money in the, in, by digging silver out of, the, out of the mountains, you're not gonna walk around with that money because somebody with a pickaxe is gonna steal it from you. Yet, so they start, they, they open banks. People put their money into banks. Wells Fargo also transported, you know, silver and gold dust from the mountains down to the banks and brought the cash back up to the miners or some money up to the miners so they can have basic necessities or supplies, whatever. So, um, the, the, a lot of the little, there were a few little guys. I mean, Ed Schieflin, who was the guy who founded the first silver mine in Tombstone, became enormously rich. But it's sort of like, because he was there, one of the very first that enabled him to have that opportunity for the people who came afterwards, a lot of them were, were struggling and just, you know, steamrolled over by the, the larger investors that, that didn't waste any time getting in there. Now, when they established Tombstone to be this, this mining town, um, what kind of town did it become? I know in a lot of people's minds, they're picturing this dusty town with a dozen wooden buildings in it, and there's maybe like 200 people that live there. Um, what's the truth there of Tombstone? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, because certainly when we've seen movies that portray Tombstone, uh, you know, TV shows and movies, some of this depends on their budget, of course, but but often Tombstone is like a let's say typical western frontier town uh you know the 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 wooden building facade uh, of, of the the studio lot kind of thing uh it is a handful of wooden buildings there's tumbleweeds rolling across the street there's dust there's a handful of people and while that's true of many frontier towns some of them didn't last that long became ghost towns and just got knocked down in storms and never found again um Tombstone rather quickly became a, a, a sophisticated city. It built itself as the San Francisco of the Southwest because, one thing, because there was money. Uh, you know, people, as beginning with somebody like Ed Schieflin and his brother, who had made enormous amounts of money from the first silver mines, they invested in Tombstone. Uh, they wanted to see this town become bigger. And, and, and so within only two or three years of when that first silver was discovered in Tombstone, you had a city that was building saloons and, and had saloons and hotels, restaurants. You could find a French restaurant, an Italian restaurant in Tombstone, uh, churches, um, cultural centers. Uh, you know, Schieflin Hall, when it, when it was opened, built and opened up, uh, it would have you, the original plays. It had touring companies would come through, Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. So uh, I think what people will be surprised at in the book is that the true portrayal of Tombstone was not as this dusty, barely hanging on town, but as a rather sophisticated city. Who knows what would have happened to Tombstone over the decades 
if it wasn't for, you know, after a few years uh, in the 1880s, it's, uh, the mines got flooded and the, the, the silver ran out. So uh, it, 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 it didn't disappear. Tombstone's still there today, but uh, it, it, it was, it was prevented from becoming the, the, this, this oasis of civilization that it hoped to be in the Southwest. Yeah, I was I was really surprised when you when you quote a census uh, on Tombstone, and it actually it has more people had more people in it than the town I grew up in. Yeah, and people and a lot of people came there to stay. You know, there were there, there were always people in frontier towns who were passing through, mm. but but there were a lot of people who came to stay. That's why they were building schools and building churches. They wanted to have raise families in Tombstone and. Uh, <clears throat> they uh, and some people eventually did. You know, some people even when Tombstone's fortunes declined, they stayed. <clears throat> but some people, they you know, the time came. They said, you know what, this this place is kind of played out. Let's let's try someplace else. Now, in towns like Tombstone and and elsewhere in the West, as it's being settled, um, what's what's the state of law and order? Um, you know, what did it mean to be a a frontier lawman? Well. Along with people bringing to the frontier their ideas of, let's find a place to settle, we can build churches and schools and <clears throat> saloons and cultural centers and restaurants, is the idea that they were bringing with them uh, a law and order system, a justice system. Um, sometimes it was very rudimentary, especially if you a, a town was small enough that you didn't have a judge present. You know, you had to wait until a judge made the rounds and got to your town. Um, <clears throat> you might not have had enough people sometimes to have a trial. <laughs> had, to, had to try and find people elsewhere, recruit them from elsewhere in the county, for example. Uh, but that's where I think, I think what also makes the Tombstone story very important, beyond just that there was a famous gunfight that took place there, is that Tombstone was kind of a flashpoint. It was like an epicenter for the Old West and the New West. Uh, Tombstone was filled with uh, cowboys and others who wanted the Wild West to stay the Wild West because it pretty much meant they had a free hand to do what they wanted when they wanted and to who they wanted to do it to. But you also had people that said, you know what, this is a, a city that's going to be going to the 20th century as a civilized modern city, a good place for families. So we can't let the Wild West be the Wild West anymore. This is the New West. And so that's what I think made the Tombstone story particularly interesting because it, it was, this was ground zero for that clash between the old and the new. Um, and the gunfight at the OK Corral specifically, aside from, in addition to it being a very, very exciting event, um, it was in a lot of ways the, the last gasp, I mean, literally, of uh, of the old way of doing things, of the corrupt ranchers, of the crooked cowboys, wanting to things to stay the way they are, and the new West that was saying, no, we we have law and order now. We have we have marshals and sheriffs and deputies. We actually have actual police departments now. You know, and Virgil Earp, uh, who was at at one time the marshal of Tombstone. His actually his official title at the time of the gunfire at the OK Corral was he was commissioner of the Tombstone Police Department. I mean, that sounds so modern, but that's what was evolving. And that's what Tombstone was at when you had this group of, of, of uh, the Clantons and the McLowrys coming into town and saying, no, no, we can't let, basically, we can't let you do this because you're ruining our way of life. Well, your way of life was incompatible with a modern city. 
So you mentioned Virgil Earp. Um, who? Let's talk about the cast a little bit. Who who were the Earps, and, and how did they get their start? Well, there were actually six Earp brothers, and again, something that fascinates me about the Tombstone story is that five of them reunited in Tombstone. Uh, one of them, the very oldest brother, had left the the family years and years ago for California and never returned. Uh, ended up having a long life out there as a as a developer of homes. <laughs> and uh, um, but uh, the other five herbs, uh, which were James, Virgil, Wyatt, Morgan, and Warren, uh, especially James, Wyatt, Morgan, and Virgil, they saw Tombstone as a place to get a fresh start. They weren't necessarily interested in being lawmen. Uh, that was certainly true of Morgan and Wyatt and, and, and Warren and James. Uh, Virgil was the only one really wearing a badge for quite a while in Tombstone. With Virgil Earp, the only thing he knew how to do was be a lawman. So he was one on and off in Tombstone. But his brothers were businessmen, or they wanted to be. They saw the Tombstone mining operations as an opportunity to make good money. Uh, they saw... Um, a chance to have like an herb compound where they would all live right next to each other, basically. And they had their wives with them. Uh, everyone except Warren, who was unmarried. And they, you know, envisioned maybe, okay, if we have children, we'll all raise each other's children together and we'll send them to schools. And I don't know if they'd be attending churches, but they, they really saw themselves as having an opportunity to put down roots and become respectable. Uh, you know, I can't overlook that because that was a big part. The Earps came from low Scrabble beginnings. Uh, you know, their father, Nicholas, was often in trouble for one thing or another and actually had been thrown in jail a couple of times. And a very, very restless spirit was constantly uprooting his family. And so you had these, these five Earp brothers reuniting in Tombstone saying, here's a chance for us to start over and to sink our roots into this, you know, into the desert here and make money and be a, be a family, and an expanding family. So I think another poignant part to the Tombstone story is how those dreams got dashed. They were, they were good dreams. They a lot of times reflected the dreams of many, many people that went out west uh, to find a, a, a new start in life. And the Earps kind of represented that. And some many people found that, realized those dreams. The Earps, unfortunately, were was a family that, that uh, it, it sort of crashed and burned. Now, another famous figure from the Tombstone story is Doc Holliday, and, and he's yes. quite a character. Uh, what, what can you tell us about him? Well, Doc was, uh, you know, Doc plays a somewhat prominent role um, in the book Dodge City. Uh, He's, he's basically Wyatt Earp is the only friend Doc has. And he does play a, 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 an important role in Dodge City, uh, but not nearly as much as Bat Masterson, for example, as Wyatt's wingman. So it's merely more in the book Tombstone that, um, um, that Doc has more of a role. Uh, he is, he's sort of like an Earp brother in the sense that the only people that will tolerate Doc, because Doc is... When, you, when Doc is sober, he's cantankerous and argumentative and difficult. And that increases exponentially when he's drinking, which is most of the time. So a lot of people can't kill, but, but Doc would never cross Wyatt. Wyatt was the one that could keep him in line. 
And he was fiercely loyal to Wyatt and Wyatt, you know, reciprocated that knowing that he was, he was the only friend Doc had. So uh, in the, in the tombstone period, uh, you know, Wyatt and Doc had met several years earlier in, in Texas uh, and where Doc was staying at the time and Wyatt was a lawman in Dodge City. And, and he told, uh, he was moonlighting as a bounty hunter at this particular time. And he told Doc, he said, if you ever have any troubles, come and look me up. Doc soon had troubles, like was often the case with Doc. And he ended up in Dodge City. And when Wyatt left Dodge City to head to Arizona, in kind of a circuitous way, so did Doc. And he ended up in Tombstone, where Wyatt knew Earp Brothers were. And Doc was somebody who, uh, uh, he was not a lawman. You know, one of the amusing ironies of the gunfight at the OK Corral is that Doc Holliday was part of it because he was not supposed to be part of that, <laughs> that group. You know, when, when push came to shove, it was Virgil who deputized his brother's uh, Morgan and Wyatt to confront these cowboys and ranchers uh, and, and either disarm them or kill them, basically, was, was, was going to happen. And Doc Holliday found out about this and he was, he was hurt. You know, that, that, that uh, Wyatt and his brothers would go off on this mission and not include him. So they sort of guilted Virgil to really hold his nose and deputize Doc. Uh, the last person you would want to see wearing a badge is Doc Holliday, but, but that's one of the. <laughs> It is a, there's a funny part uh, uh, as, as the things are getting close to where the gunfight at the OK Corral is about to take place, where Virgil very reluctantly deputizes Doc and also hands him a shotgun. And the reason why is, is, is you know, Doc is often portrayed as this, you know, one of the great gunfighters of the West. Doc couldn't hit the broadside of a barn with a pistol. I mean, you didn't want Doc taking his pistol out anywhere near you because he's just as likely to shoot you as the person, as a bad guy. So, so Virgil <laughs> hands him a shotgun and says, "Use this, because you know, even 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 Doc with a sh with a shotgun is going to hit something, uh, preferably you know, the bad guy." So, uh, so Doc Doc is is a uh, important character who's who's th all through the book Tombstone. Now, you you've mentioned they're going to come up against these uh, you know cowboys and, and ranchers. So let's, let's talk about them. Who who are the Clantons and, and the McClurys? They were ranchers, uh, and <clears throat> they weren't bad guys. I mean, they did some bad things. Let's face they they ambushed Mexican uh, cattle drives to steal the cattle and rebrand them and sell them to the army. Uh, they 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 harbored the cowboys, you know, Curly Bill Brosius and Johnny Ringo and that that crowd who were kind of indiscriminate in who they shot, when they shot, and where they shot people. So they weren't good guys, but they weren't villains necessarily. They weren't evil people. Uh, in fact, because they owned their ranches and, and it, you know, owned them for some time and intended to be there forever and maybe have their own families and raise them in the Tombstone area, they saw themselves as, as playing a, a, a good role in the future of, of Tombstone in, in, in the state of Arizona. Um, their problem was that because they were aligned with the Cowboys, they were, you know, sort of like de facto opponents of the attempts to bring law and order to Tombstone. So, you know, what should have happened on October 26, 1881, in the gunfight at the OK Corral, is that it should have been 
the local sheriff and maybe Virgil's marshal and a couple of deputies against Curly Bill Brosius, Johnny Ringo, and a handful of cowboys. Because that's who really were the opponents in, in here. But that's but it worked out that that the the ranchers, McClowries and the Clantons were were there instead. They sort of felt this weight upon them to represent the cowboy interests. And in the absence of the sheriff and deputies doing their jobs on that day in Tombstone, Virgil had to deputize his brothers and, and sort of say, okay, we're, we're suddenly representing law and order in Tombstone. We didn't, we didn't want this job, but we've suddenly got it. And let's make the best of it. Uh, so what, what were some of the, the, the issues that they were having? What, what was the source of this animosity that was brewing in the summer and fall of 1881? Well, the, you know, the Cowboys could see that they were facing the end of the trail. And what I mean by that is that, you know, the Cowboys had a way of life that didn't, that didn't want to include law and order, that didn't want to include limitations on how they, getting drunk and shooting up a town on a Saturday night. Uh, that, that, you know, their way of law and order was that uh, whoever was, was the best shootest, uh, whoever was the toughest guy, whoever was the most insane. It's one of the reasons why Johnny Ringo and Curly Bill Brosius, who were sociopaths, uh, were, were the leaders of the cowboy faction because everybody else was scared of them. Um, it was very much a, a gang kind of mentality uh, among the cowboys. And um, the, as Tombstone was growing and more and more people were, were in Tombstone wanting a civilized way of life and a safe environment, a safe place to raise children and send them to school and go to church and things like that, uh, the cowboys' days were numbered. You know, they had been pushed out of Texas. They had into New Mexico. Then New Mexico had pushed them out of New Mexico into Arizona. There was no place else for them to go. There was no safe haven for cowboys anymore. You know, a few of them, a few outlaws managed to hang on for a while. You had the Hole in the Wall gang, for example. Um, but, uh, but, but, but so, so they were basically in Tombstone, they were fighting for their continued existence. And then on the other hand, you had the Law and Order faction, you know, the, the newspaper, the Tombstone Epitaph, for example, was constantly editorializing, saying, we've got to get rid of these cowboys, we've got to throw them all in jail, we've got to send them to prison. And uh, so you had more and more people saying, yeah, we've got to do something about these cowboys. And because some of the law enforcement officers at the time were not willing to go up against the cowboys, uh, you had Virgil Earp as the only one, uh, and, and his brothers, who would go up against the Cowboys, who were not afraid of the Cowboys. And so to the Cowboys and, and, the, and the corrupt ranchers that harbored them, like the McLowrys and the Clantons, the Earths were viewed as the opposition. Uh, they, were, they were the ones trying to oppress them. They were the ones trying to end their existence. They were the ones that they had a chance would throw the cuffs on them and toss them into prison. So this, this view of each other, uh, of, of you know what what Tombstone's past was and what his future was going to be was more and more getting into, they were butting heads harder and harder and harder. And, you know, you'd like to think, well, didn't somebody step forward and say, listen, fellas, there's a way to work this out. No, nobody did. And nobody really wanted to. I, there, there was tension, but there was also, I think, a kind of a thrill in Tombstone to say something's going to happen. And it's going to happen soon. Yeah. What, what's going to happen? 
Well, what were townspeople thinking? Because they're, they're sitting there watching this rivalry form. You know, they were, they, I, I, thankfully, for the purpose of, of things being more dramatic, not, the, the townspeople did not all have the same viewpoint. Uh, you had townspeople, let's say the business community in particular, was more for law and order because let's face it, if you, if you don't have to worry about going to the store and getting shot, <laughs> you've got to go to the store and buy some dry goods and, and, and go to the theater uh, and go to the saloon. Um, so there were, there were the business community and, and people in religious communities and certainly pe- families who were sending their young children to schools that they had just built uh, wanted a safe environment. But you also had part of Tombstone that was saying, no, no, we, you know, let's be free, live free or die. You know, let's, let's have things back, to stay, this, stay the way they are because they were just more fun and we didn't have, we, you know, it's part of writing the book about Tombstone and it's become even more clear to me now after the book's come out is that it's, it, in some ways it kind of represents even the divide in this country right now where you have, uh, you look at the argument about about masks that are going on. You have some people who are saying we've got to have mask mandates because they reduce the spread of the coronavirus. Well, okay, I think most of the science agrees with that. So for a lot of people, masks are a good idea. But you have other people who say, listen, even if masks are a good idea, I don't want to have it imposed upon me. I don't think the government should tell me whether I should wear a mask or not. And there are people who agree with that because they see this as you know an erosion of their of their rights as American citizens. And, you know, there was, Tombstone was kind of in that situation. You know, is the government taking over our lives for the safety of creating a safe environment? So you really had, uh, you know, you, you had um, a, a lot of conflict just getting harsher and harsher between the two sides, inevitably, you know, leading to a violent confrontation. Uh, and and to that point, in your comparison to you know what we have going on right now with COVID, I mean we do see that kind of confrontation over the masks popping up in in tiny places here and there. Yeah, and I think you know we we can see. I mean, certainly somebody who reads Tombstone in the next week is good, is going to see. I think, or the next few weeks or whatever, is going to draw parallels uh, because uh, Tombstone was also a flashpoint between a pioneer America, a frontier America, a, a nothing's more important than freedom America, which had been going on for the past couple of centuries, and a evolving America that's moving towards the 20th century. And that is saying, you know, we want to have safety for, for our citizens and we, we need more structure in our government. We need more structure in our society. I'm not, you know, criticizing one position or another. It's just that they certainly in Tombstone proved to be incompatible. Now, in the very beginning of your book, you uh, liken the Tombstone story to America's Iliad. How, how have we chosen to remember this story? Well, I think there are certain events in the American West, the history of the American West, that have this, continue to have this mythical quality to them. Uh, uh, you know, like with, with, with the Greeks looked back in their history to the Iliad uh, and, and, and some of their famous ancestors like Agamemnon and Achilles and Hector and um, Odysseus and some of the others. And I, I sort of get that feeling when I've been researching and writing about the American West that we look back at events like the 
the Alamo, uh, Little Bighorn, uh, Gunfight at the OK Corral. Uh, you know, there's, there's a couple of events you can toss in there that we, we tell those stories over and over again. Now, usually, let's say often we're looking for a different way to tell them or new insights into, into those events, why they happen, who was involved, why the people involved were involved. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's almost like we can't get enough retellings of some of these events. The Alamo has been told how many times? Um, Little Bighorn and the story of Custer and, and Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse has been told and will be told again. Uh, Tombstone, is, certainly I'm not telling Tombstone for the first time. We can look to books and movies that have been there in the past about this story. But we want to try and find fresh takes and fresh perspectives. And maybe we're also seeing if can we, is the story still exciting if, if, it's, if we tell it in a more accurate fashion? Tombstone's story has been told many times before with some of the legends and, and, and misrepresentations and fictions still included. Uh, the, the fact is, it's a fascinating story if you tell the exact truth, or at least the truth as we know it based on re you know, research and facts. So I think that's why there's a comparison could be made to, to, the, to the Iliad and, and, and the great mythic stories of any culture, really. Tombstone is one of the great mythic stories of our culture. Uh, and I, I will say in, in reading your book, uh, I think, you know, the huge strength of it is that you, you take what it seems like a guy, guy story and you, you show that it's really actually really complicated and nuanced and incredibly fascinating. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed out because that was part of the challenge. And I think ultimately part of the reward of doing the story is that you could tell a tombstone story very simply, you know, I mean, uh, my book is, is something like 300 and something pages, and you could probably tell it 100 pages, but you'd leave out a lot of good stuff. I mean, one example right away I can think of in the Tombstone story is part of that story, which often gets overlooked. I mean, a lot of times in movies, for example, when the gunfight at the OK Corral ends, that's the end of the story. You know, there's nothing after that. You know, the, the Earps, you know, and the clans go at it, whatever the outcome is, that's the end of the story. When in fact, and what my book covers in some detail is that there was a very dramatic courtroom uh, uh, event after that in which Wyatt and Doc were put on trial for murder and that trial lasted for a month. And then you also have the Earp Vendetta ride where after two of his brothers were shot, Wyatt and Warren Earp and Doc Holliday saddle up and they go after the guys that they think did the shooting. And so those are two very, very important ingredients in the entire story. So. So, you know, it, it does make the whole story much more complicated. It's not like, you know, a few guys got together in a, in, a, in, a, in a corral and said, I don't like you, I don't like you, pull their guns, shoot each other, the end. You know, there's a lot more to it. Yeah, and, and those later portions that you just described are, are a couple of the most interesting parts in the whole book, in my opinion. And I'm glad I, I wanted to include them because, you know, just for, as one example, at that trial that was held, I kind of use the term loosely, the, the legal proceeding that was held. If Wyatt and Doc, if the judge at the end of that had said, yes, you guys committed murder, we might, you know, at the most today, Wyatt and Doc would be footnotes because they could have ended up in prison for the rest of their lives or hung. And certainly did not, would not have gone on, you know, to have the Earp Vendetta ride and gone to have the lives that they did. Of course, Doc's was a lot shorter than Wyatt's. 
So if someone wanted to pick up a copy of uh, Tombstone and you know learn more about you know what led up to the shootout, the gunfight itself, uh, and you know the aftermath and the repercussions from it, uh, where can they go to get a copy of the book uh, or to learn more about you? Well, my website is tomclavin.com, T-O-M-C-L-A-V as in Victor, I-N, tomclavin.com. Uh, I'm a big champion of people supporting their local independent bookstores. I know some of them have really struggled during the pandemic. Some of them are still not reopened, but uh, please go in and, and, and ask for Tombstone. It's, it's just coming out in trade paperback edition, which saves people some money. Uh, but of course, you do have Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com as as other options, so uh, it could be found. And and but uh, if if you patronize uh, an independent bookstore, please next time you stop in, ask about Tombstone. Well, uh, Tom, it was a huge pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, this was a really fun book to read, and you were uh, great to talk to. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, my pleasure. I hope I have a chance to do it again. Hope so. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. Thanks for hanging out for another episode of Can't Make This Up. Uh, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tom Clavin. Uh, if you want to pick up a copy of his book, uh, there's a link to it down in the description of this episode in your podcast app. That will connect you to a site called IndieBound.org uh, that will allow you to find a local independent bookseller in your area that might sell uh, Tom's new book out in paperback uh, today. One more small housekeeping item uh, I forgot to mention at the beginning of the show is last time we were together, I ended the show by previewing the next upcoming episode, uh, which is an interview with Alelia Bundles, who wrote a biography of her ancestor, Madam C.J. Walker. Uh, great interview. I'm very excited to get to it. Uh, unfortunately, with the holidays, I had to shuffle some things around. Uh, so unfortunately, I wasn't able to publish um, Alelia's episode between Christmas and New Year like I intended. But that will be my next episode, and it'll be out next week, the second full week of January. So I look forward to seeing you again next week. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.